this episode of Agentic Shift, we talk to John McCusick, founder of Next Left. John tells us about his days on the high school surfing team, what it was like running a digital agency in 1999, why he is making his agency a B Corp, how he created amazing content for a client to get them ranked number one on the competitive term baseball bats, and how he came up with the name Next Left. Hint, it is surfing related. Enjoy the show. John, thanks for joining me on Agentic Shift. Yes, thank you, David. Thanks for having me. Yeah, totally. We've known each other for at least a decade, maybe longer. I want to hear your founder story, but before we start with that, why don't you just tell us what Next Left is, just so people understand what your agency does. Sure, yeah. So Next Left, we started about seven years ago. We're focused on content marketing as the core strategy. And then for reach, we are a digital marketing agency focus on content marketing. For Reach, we focus on SEO. We are doing some paid media as well and conversion rate optimization. Okay. If you were in a crowded room of content marketers and SEO agencies, how would you differentiate Next Left? Yeah, I think the content marketing as a core strategy is a pretty big differentiator. I think a lot of companies come in as more maybe technical SEOs or maybe coming in as paid or web development. I think the kind of content as a core is a pretty big differentiator. Our track record is impeccable. Our reviews, we have reviews on Clutch and Glassdoor. Those are all also shining stars there. So the results speak for themselves. I think a differentiator as well is our team is are set up more as a consultancy. We don't have junior staff. Most of our team have five to 10 years minimum experience in digital marketing, usually both in-house as well as working for agencies. Okay, that's interesting. I want to follow up on that, the no junior staff concept. But before we get to that, and I also want to talk about content, let's talk a little bit about your story. So I know we met when you were at Geary Interactive, and I think you were one of the founders of Geary. Is that right? Correct. Yep. So tell us your story from humble roots to agency founder multiple times. Yeah, so I was born originally in Los Angeles. I grew up there. My mom was a entrepreneur. And so I think that's where I got the bug. She, she was a single mom raising myself and my sister. And so back in the 80s, she was running a word processing business. She had these IBM word processors in an office and were there all the time. She had a word processing machine at the house. And so I think the sound of typing is like very soothing to me. And I've always, even as a little, almost baby, like have loved computers. And so that was, I think, the seed for being kind of a geek and kind of a love of technology and computers. From there, when I was 12, we moved to the beach. We moved down to Seal Beach in Southern California, started surfing, got this major surfing bug. I was immediately addicted, got into doing surfing competitions. That really became my life and still on from a fun side is still a big part of it. So I definitely say I'm an athlete. I went to high school in Huntington Beach with surf team, all of those things. And then for college, moved down here where I um, still am in San Diego. I went to Point Loma Nazarene University. They had actually an amazing computer lab at the time, way ahead of really any other school that I had checked out. And so my life was basically living in the dorms, surfing, going to the computer lab, ended up getting a job as a lab assistant in the computer lab while I was going to school. And so all my spare time was spent working on computers. Actually, this was back in 1995, 1996. They had one of the first high-speed internet connections around. So they had an ISDN line that they put in. 
and really opened the internet really early for me and actually got paid doing my first website back in 1996. Yeah, so pretty early days. And yeah, so from there, did college and then met a business partner and started the agency Gear Interactive. Started that back in 1999. There's a lot more to the story, but I'll not give every single detail. Yeah, 1999, actually my business partner and I were working on a project for ESPN.com at the time, had great synergy and felt like we could do this for a lot of other companies. And so we started Geary Interactive. My uncle and my family owned an agency in Las Vegas called Geary Company. And so we actually named ourselves Geary because that was like they were a traditional agency. And so we partnered with them to do all the interactive services. And that was kind of our seed working on they're in Las Vegas. So we started working on like Sahara Hotel and Casino, Imperial Palace, a lot of kind of cool old properties out in Las Vegas. And really doing that hospitality marketing, I think, was where we started with Geary. And then fortunately, too, in 2001, we started working on a lot of colleges and universities. And they were now kind of the big names back then. They were pretty small, but it was like the Art Institutes. We were working with them nationally, as well as University of Phoenix, which we were actually doing email marketing, just straight email marketing for them and helping promote them online as their digital marketing agency. And so, yeah, so that grew into like a performance marketing aspect. So kind of my role there, I was a founder with one other partner. We actually did a lot of acquisitions. I was kind of like CTO for a long time and then started running our performance marketing group. And I was hearing some of the other podcasts as well. And so the performance marketing is interesting. And I really loved it because it's like pure accountability. I think it's very challenging to do in multiple verticals, but doing it in the higher ed space at the time was just like kind of a lottery ticket because it was like perfect timing is really the birth of, I think, EDU lead gen. And we did really well and kind of rode that wave as well as doing all full services as well. I ended up building all our teams, SEO, our creative team, the paid media teams as well. So that was Geary. And so we ended up doing a merger and we ended up growing into the largest independent digital marketing firm in the country. And then I ended up, stayed on for a couple of years after our large merge and then kind of started doing some other things. Well, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. Maybe we can work backwards a little bit. First of all, I was just going to say, when you mentioned University of Phoenix, I worked for a lead gen company from 2004 to 2006, and we did a lot of education. And I remember Phoenix was one of the companies we could do leads for, and we would buy the word University of Phoenix, of course, on Google. And after a while, Phoenix figured out that it doesn't make sense to pay someone a referral fee if someone's typing University of Phoenix. So they said, you can't buy the word University of Phoenix. We're like, all right. So we started buying Phoenix University. And they say, you can't buy Phoenix University. So then we started buying misspellings of Phoenix. <laughs> it was basically just, it just goes to show like the early days of performance marketing, how it was real. I described it as the wild, wild west. I mean, anything goes, people were doing that sort of keyword manipulation. They were stuffing affiliate links at the last minute to get a credit for something. I mean, it was just, I think people who are in marketing today, sort of everything seems to be pretty well laid out and organized. And there was kind of just chaos back then, right? Yeah, it was definitely chaotic, <laughs> skirting around the rules a bit. But we were fortunate in that we had kind of a more direct relationship with the University of Phoenix. So we went through a lot of those conversations along the way as well. It was just like, should other advertisers run on your brand? And yeah, I think the email marketing actually was one of the bigger issues where they ended up getting in quite a bit of trouble for kind of practices of their affiliates through email marketing. But yeah, the paid side, like for me, it was for them. And I think it continues as like if you can protect your brand and kind of like have companies that are working with you running your brand terms, like you're at least like not having competitors run there. So you're at least like from a share of voice, like it's powerful. For sure. 
I was on a panel once with the head of marketing for University of Phoenix, and he said, affiliates have cost us more than a billion dollars of negative brand equity through their actions. And I said, and you also lost a billion dollars of negative brand equity by sponsoring the Arizona Cardinals Stadium. (laughs) (laughs) So So I also just want to ask a little bit about your surfing background. So did you say you were on the high school surf team? Was that like a varsity sport? It was. It was a varsity sport. We could get a, you know our Letterman's jacket, and yeah, it's a full it's, yeah Southern California, and really on the East Coast as well. But Southern California, it's pretty serious. A lot of professional surfers go through that program, and every morning we'd wake up and I'd ride my bike down to the beach. It's about three, four mile ride each way, and jump in the water every single morning. And then a lot of times after school, we go surf as well. And then, yeah, we'd have competitions across all our schools, and then we'd have nationals over in, at Trestles for all the high schools. And then, so even wait, wait, wait a minute, if you're talking about nationals for surfing, we're talking about basically what California, Florida, and Hawaii is that where everyone there's no uh, Michigan surf team, is there? There's some waves in the Great Lakes. Yeah, I don't think there's a Michigan surf team that I know of, but yeah, it was mostly those states. Yeah, I think it's interesting with surfing, like as a sport, there's actually a new show on Apple Plus, which I highly recommend too, on this, on the WSL. But it's definitely a very international sport where I think the United States, we have two coasts. We have Hawaii, but there's other countries like Brazil and even Europe, there's big surf communities, obviously Australia. So from an international side, surfing's actually, I think, much larger. I don't know the stats, but like, I think much larger internationally than the U.S., where like, I think Australia, it's their national sport. So for us, baseball is our national sport and football. So yeah, it's a big deal. It's a sport in the Olympics, similar like snowboarding too. I think snowboarding was kind of like similar thoughts, like, hey, who lives by the mountains? Who lives in the snow? But there's quite a bit of accessibility to all of it. I think surfing has more accessibility because it's free. And definitely saw it, I think, during kind of COVID, kind of with people not traveling, like people from all over were driving down to the beaches. So it's very accessible sport, I think. And that's one of the reasons I did it. Like growing up, I didn't have much money and that was a sport I could just go do and it's free. Yeah, as long as you have a surfboard and a wetsuit that semi works, you'll you have some fun. I it's mean, I think you just have to count yourself as fortunate if you are in a high school that has a surf team, much less being on the surf team. Yeah. It's funny. I didn't even know much about surfing, but when we left Los Angeles to move down to the beach, like I definitely, even as a kid, I knew there, I was very excited just to, I think just nature in general, living near nature is super important. Did you ever think about becoming a professional surfer? I, oh yeah, definitely. Like during kind of high school days, there's that moment for sure. Logically, I was like, okay, at the time, like professional surfers weren't making very much money. And in, unless you're like the top three and even that they're making maybe six figures at the time. I'm like, this is a very tough path. It's a very big risk. So that's where kind of making that decision to go to college and not pursue that, keep it as a hobby and not as a professional. But for sure, like uh, that was my dream all through as I was a kid. And I have to ask this question that probably surfers are annoyed by, but have you ever had a shark encounter? (laughs) I have. Yeah, I've had several. I've had them in Huntington Beach. I saw the biggest shark I've ever seen. There's a huge, I think it was a either tiger or great white, but they Pretty much in general, like sharks are friendly. I've actually gone diving with sharks in Belize and the blue hole and it's cool. You get to see them close up and unless like they're confused or have problems there, there's not going to be, I think, much issues of being afraid of a shark. But when you see it, it's definitely scary. 
probably the more exciting times has been actually saving swimmers that are struggling or like even other surfers that are close to drowning. It's almost can be scarier because you're like, okay, this person could drown me. Like I need to help them or it's maybe like I've helped like a dad and son in Hawaii. And it's like, okay, like I need to help these guys out of the situation. Well, I feel like we need an entire separate conversation about <laughs> surfing. Go, yeah. I will say that I just got back from vacation and I did go swimming with sharks, but these were sort of three foot long reef, black tipped reef sharks. And it was an area where the fishermen cleaned their catch and just threw it all in there. So these sharks were just, there were probably 50 of them just waiting for someone to throw stuff in. And then of course the tourists found out about it. So now the tourist boats drive the people out to the sharks. And to your point, I mean, the sharks are just like, sometimes they come within like five or six feet of you and then you try to reach out and they just bolt away. So where was that in Panama or where? No, it was in Tahiti, actually. Oh, cool. So that's awesome. Separate podcast, David's trip to Tahiti, which was very cool. I guess two other surfing things. I mean, one is I think the concept of a wiki is a Hawaiian term, right? So that's kind of got a little bit of a surf element to it. And then we did have one of my friends, uh, Janelle on from Chaka Marketing. And Chaka is Hawaiian for something. And surfers apparently know what Chaka means or something. Yeah, Chaka is, yeah, that's a Hawaiian, like, hang loose. Hang loose. Okay. Yeah, so she's not a surfer. She's in Tampa Bay, which probably has some waves, but she was inspired maybe by, I can't remember the story, but that's how she came up with the name of her agency. It's similar to Next Left as well. So Next Left's actually a surfing term. So the Next Left is basically, it's like when you go left on a wave or right on the wave. So it's based on your like surfing. Oh, you're it like who gets to go next basically or? Yeah, well, it's like, it's a direction of the wave. So like on the waves, people can go one way or the other, or you can go straight, right? You go left, right, or straight. And so, yeah, I actually had a developer that I'd worked with for years and we were in the lineup surfing and I didn't even know he surfed. He, I just saw him on the beach and he was like, I'm going surfing. So we, we went out and we're in the water and we're talking about like what's going on with Next Left and the business, but he didn't know the name of it. And I was like, yeah, it's called Next Left. And he's like, well, why did you call that Next Left? And then this perfect left wave comes in and I'm like, this is why. <laughs> like, and so he caught that Next Left and wrote it and it was an awesome wave. So, yeah. Well, yeah, like I said, I mean, I feel like there's a lot of surfing that we could talk about here, and I'm very unknowledgeable of it. And we were talking beforehand about how I attempted to do a wing foil, which is like even harder than surfing. And I've never actually been successful at surfing. So suffice to say, I failed dramatically. Yeah, well, that's super brave. Those wing foils and the foils, like a big sword. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But I tried it once, probably never again. So let's talk about Next Left a little bit. I guess I want to ask two questions. One was, you have no junior staff. So you have this consultancy model that sounds great for clients, but it also sounds like maybe for you and your team, sometimes you're doing work that maybe is beneath your pay grade. So how do you figure that out? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, I think from like the actual doing, let's call it. So within kind of SEO, there's your technical SEO, you have your content strategy, you have your content creation, um, you have link building. And so... From a technical SEO, like senior people are better because there's certain priority of things to do technically that really matter. So experience, seeing what works, what doesn't. So you're not spinning wheels is super important. A lot of the technical SEO is actually not that time consuming. It's more around knowing what to do. And the things that get more time consuming that are even more technical, then we actually have like developer or programmers that will work on those aspects of the site. Those people may, they could, they don't have to be as senior as like the consultant and like the strategist, but that's kind of more that doer role. And then on the writing side, same thing, like 
there's writers that may have different levels of seniority. Obviously, writing, you can't hide behind work. It doesn't matter if you're a senior writer or a junior writer, like you can tell good writing and not good writing. And so it's more of like an output on writing. So there could be junior writers writing, but again, the quality output is what's important. On the link building side, we do have a team offshore that helps with some of the like more just kind of consistent tasks. They are actually very senior there too. That process has been going on for almost a decade. So technically they're senior, but it's definitely a lower paid individuals offshore. I guess where the things become a little more, let's call it easy or a little more like commoditized, those are areas where that's maybe where we would maybe outsource some of the output of that or, or have people that are just good at doing that will ask. Anything that's strategy or anything that's like client facing and then even a lot of the technical aspects are that senior team but i think we go back and forth as well because it's like well then what's kind of the ladder within the company and it's definitely a bit of an issue and can be a challenge and figuring out like tiers and like we are a very flat flat organization and so i think there are some opportunities bringing in people like whether it's an intern or someone that has maybe some of that potential to help them ladder up but i think our goal is not to have people learning on the job our goal is to that the people that are working on the work are they're the best in the industry. Got it. Makes sense. Yeah, it's great. I mean, it's a great value for clients when you don't push things off on <laughs> the junior person and you have senior people working on it. One question I want to ask is you mentioned content and we had Matt Query from ROI DNA on last week and he said he believed content was the future of marketing and he does a lot of B2B stuff. I mean, sometimes when you think of content for SEO, I always think of like the old days of like the keyword stuffing content, like are you interested in customized mugs? We have a great selection of customized mugs. You can find customized mugs on our site, which also offers non-customized mugs, whatever. I mean, how do you differentiate yourself or you differentiate your clients from a content perspective and still get good SEO rankings without sort of doing the terrible keyword stuffing that I just described? Yeah, definitely. So after Geary, I went and started running universities.com. And that was actually like my aha moment. I think I had a similar aha moment that content is the future as well. Running universities.com is 100% a content play. It's not keyword stuffing at all. It's more how do you make content that's valuable and useful? So things that are like, is the content entertaining? Is it educational? Is it newsworthy? I think Google has, over the years, has gotten a lot smarter around, especially in competitive spaces, around ranking authoritative and the best possible content that's on the web for those keywords. And so to do that, you can't really trick the algorithms or anything like that. You actually have to, similar to social media, like you have to build authority. So whether, yeah, like if you're going to write a piece on like a client of ours, is like a baseball, right? So they sell baseball bats. We couldn't even rank the page if we just said, hey, let's write a, have a page with a bunch of baseball bats and put the word baseball bat, baseball bat, it's not going to rank. It's too competitive. We're competing against Amazon, Dick Sporting Good, and all kinds of sites that are just baseballbats.com, like direct sites. And so then it becomes like, okay, well, how we, this company that we worked with was like, they're an authority. They actually had physical stores that just do baseball. And so how do we build that authority, that same authority online? And so it becomes a whole content strategy around like, okay, well, we want to do obviously like guides and like, how do you break in a baseball bat? How do you choose a baseball bat? There's tons of information that people don't really know around like BB core and youth sports and 
what are the regulations and they're constantly changing. And so it's like making basically that whole realm of content right on, online and having that available and then going the next level of that is now like, okay, well, how do we distribute this content, right? How do we get this out there so people know about it and that they're, this content is so great that the little leaguers of America, they want to know about this. So why don't we reach out to all the little leaguers and let them know? And so there's like email marketing involved, right? And conferences and all these things. And over time, then that ultimately builds that authority for them, for our client into becoming an authority in baseball bats. And over time, they start ranking in top positions. And they were number one for years in the keyword baseball bats, which drives quite a bit of revenue every month. (laughs) I mean, what I'm hearing is you have to be patient and you have to be sort of nuanced in your approach. I mean, I still get emails all the time that say, hey, I wrote an article on home cleaning supplies, and I think it would be great for you to add to your blog at 3Q Digital. (laughs) It's just like, what? The sort of spray and pray approach. But I mean, what you're talking about, I would assume though, that like if you're a little league commissioner, you probably still get 50 emails a month from people who want you to promote their content about baseball bats, whatever. So you really need to, I'm not, I don't think I'm putting words in your mouth by saying you really need to create truly valuable content that someone would sort of pay to read almost to get that sort of spread that you're talking about. Yeah, no, and it's like almost like in certain spaces, it's almost like an arms race. And I think that's what Google wants. And I think it's bettering the internet, right? Where the arms race is, how do we make even better content now? Cool, like maybe early days, infographics worked great, but now infographics are done or they don't work as well. So, and then maybe blog posts then were the next hot thing. And so they work well, but there starts to be diminishing return. And so, yeah, I think we do content that's like video content and interactive, almost like applications. Like we basically, for one of our clients, it's called Gilmore. They sell like gardening equipment. We target our goals to make them the authority in gardening, right? And so we started looking at like what do gardeners want? And so we started to look at like government resources and what information's around there around like planting zones, for example. And so the United States government's posted all this information about planting zones, but the content is like very unusable, right? And so we went in and basically said, okay, well, this information is available. It's government information. And we ended up building a pretty massive application that's very easy to use. It's all web-based around figuring out your planting zone based on your zip code. And then from there, the next level of that is saying, okay, well, now that I know my planting zones, I'm into gardening. So what can I plant and when should I plant it? And so then we create a whole database and a whole another application around what do you plant and when and from seed to cultivating. Some of those were like six months to a year long projects and to really take it to that next level. And they still like if you type planting zones, they're usually either above the government site or right below the government site. And so we do that over and over. And that's where I think the strategy, it's like being strategic is so important because I think a lot of companies do, do, do but they're not taking that step back and saying, well, why am I doing this? That makes a ton of sense. I'm thinking back to my trip to Tahiti and I typed in like family vacation to Tahiti and I got just 99% of the content was just filler content. It was like either just copying TripAdvisor posts or someone just went to the Tahiti Bureau of Tourism and just repackaged their content. And I was actually thinking to myself, if I wrote a blog based on my own experience, it would be so much more valuable than this filler content because I actually lived that experience and I have a point of view and I have like something to say in some it's like in some respects not that hard to rank highly 
if you put the effort into actually knowing what you're talking about and being passionate about it. It's hard, but it's not that hard. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's like, yeah, everyone tries to take the shortcut. And I think there's ways to do what you're saying, but how do you do that at scale too? So how do you make those pieces of content? How do you do a hundred of those a month for lots of clients? And so that's what, as an agency, we're always focusing on. It's like, how do we continue to grow and how do we maintain the quality and constantly improve processes as well? That's great. It makes a lot of sense. Let me quickly talk about your agency in terms of your culture. So what are your core values? Are people required to surf every day? I mean, how does that all come together? For sure. So we actually take core values super seriously, and which I know every company does. I think for us, what became really obvious, like our office is over in La Jolla Shores, and my background in surfing and a lot of our team are athletes and not all surfers, but different sports and all of us like really care. And so I think naturally, and I think it's just being part of a services business too, but we naturally care. And ultimately we know we're very good at what we do. And so more and more, we want to be more selective and work with clients that want to do good. And so something that's really helped us and even furthering, like just getting more detail around like how we're doing things is we've gone through the process of being B Corp certified. And it's amazing what they've built. And so we're actually on the final kind of throws of that. It's been a year and a half process, but it's been awesome because it's really helping further define our values and further kind of pushing us to say, well, what more can we do and how can we do better? And it's like, if we could be a nonprofit, we would be a nonprofit, but it really at our size and scale, it really at this point doesn't make sense. But our goal is to help the businesses we're working with as much as possible. And we're more excited about that if we really truly believe in what our customers are doing or what the client's providing. And I think that B Corp is kind of going to be that ultimate stamp for us to say, look, like this is real. Like we're, this is part of our charter and why we exist. So I'm not hundred percent familiar with B Corps. I know it's a for-profit company that has a aim towards doing good for the world is, I guess, maybe the bad way to describe it. But what is the process of becoming a B Corp and what's the two minute summary of how you do it? Yeah, so they've built out a amazing kind of like form process. So like a massive, smart questionnaire. So anyone can like apply. And then you start going through the questionnaire, which I think weeds out a lot of people really quickly. But it talks about simple things like money going to charities. But it really gets deeper into like, what are your values? How do you treat employees? There's a lot around that for us. The questions kind of split from like if you're producing a product. So if you're like Patagonia, they're going to look at what's your supply chain, how are you treating your vendors? Where I think with us, our split as a services business goes down more questionnaire around our policies and procedures around team members. And then there's other fun stuff in there too. Like, well, are you using like in your office? Are you using sustainable products? Which I never thought. I'm like, okay, the cleaner that we're using at the office, is that sustainable? And so basically when we buy new things like that all has to be kind of more green products that are better for the planet. It's cool. It's like not just at all about purely like the planet either. That's what I've really liked about it because we always joke. We're like, we don't want to do beach cleanups. That's not who we are. We want this to be to our core and part of our soul because it is. And so what can we really do to help us be better people and so that we can kind of be a torch to further that and hopefully spread that information and knowledge. It's really cool. And the questionnaire, and we'll have to sort of link to the B Corps methodology, but it sounds really cool because the questionnaire sort of just makes you think about 
am I making a conscious choice here to do good or to look the other way, basically? Yeah, exactly. I think Google does it right, too, with their certifications. Like you go through like, the Google Ad Certified or Google Analytics. And the questionnaires, as they're asking you, you're actually learning a lot of times what's important to them. And so, yeah, I think the process of teaching is, is a genius way of saying, like, we're going to teach by asking these questions and making you think about them and then giving you a score based on what you're doing, say, one through 10, based on how you're achieving one of these hundreds of questions. How long does that process take generally? We're a year and a half in right now. We are now assigned like they assign you a consultant that then does the due diligence to make sure you answered the questions and went through the process correctly. So they're then basically they're going to review all the documentation, interview us, and cross our fingers, we'll actually get certified. Interestingly, 3Q Digital just joined forces with a company called Depth out of Amsterdam. And Depth is either already a B Corps or is in the process of becoming a B Corps. So I guess 3Q will become a B Corps, which is exciting. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. So I guess one last question. You've now founded two agencies. What advice would you give to someone who is in the early stages of growing an agency or is thinking about leaving their job, corporate job, to start a consultancy or an agency? Good question. Don't do it. (laughs) (laughs) I went through that myself. So I was in-house for a while. So I had started this agency, grew it. We were early days. So I think we had a lot of tailwinds. After we sold that company, I vowed not to get into the agency business again. So I was running universes.com, was in-house at a company called Homebay. It's kind of their marketing lead. And things started coming together and this crossroad came. So should I start another agency or start an actual business, <laughs> not a services business, something that's scalable and profitable and a lot easier to scale. But I think, yeah, for me, the decision point became, A, this is what I've done my entire life has been in a professional services business. And from when I was yeah very young. And so it's what I know. So that's part of it. And then the other part is it's like, how can I take the skills that I've learned and have maximum impact? So I know how to scale an agency and I know digital marketing and performance marketing. And so that for me, my decision point was like, okay, I want to make more impact than one company. I want to make impact on hundreds or thousands of companies. And so that was my kind of decision factor there. Advice would be think about it, think hard, because there are a lot of other things to do. We're like, I think still in a huge technology movement. I think getting in tech or other industries, there's a lot of reasons to do that. Again, like if you want to have impact on multiple companies, then I think there's that opportunity to start consulting or start working and starting an agency. I think being able to do the work is very important. You kind of need a lot of different things, right? You need to be able to sell and also be able to do the technical work as well, which is kind of rare or get a partner, right? That can do one or the other. And that's how we started our original agency. And I would have never, like with Next Left, would never feel confident to run it if I didn't know both sides. But that took 15 plus years, 20 years to feel comfortable there. So maybe finding a business partner that kind of fulfills the sides that you don't fill. And then if you're planning to grow aggressively, capital is, you can't have enough cash. Your payroll comes quick. You want to get paid. You have your mortgages, all those things. Clients, those come up right away. Clients don't always pay real quick. And so having either a line of credit or some backup cash is extremely important, especially starting out and even continuing to grow an agency. It's always important. Yeah. I mean, I think you said three really important things. One is you sort of have to go into running an agency with your eyes open and you have to sort of be excited about being in the service business or else you're going to 
be disappointed. I think, secondly, I love the idea of just making sure that you have a team or fellow co-founders who complement your skills. And for me, I was always the idea person, but I wasn't the operator. So I've always had sort of a right-hand person who has been the person who has operational efficiency that I don't have. And then on the capital front, you're absolutely right. I mean, I probably almost bankrupted myself 10 times in the first two years by not having capital reserves and not understanding that at the end of the month, you don't just give out all the profits. <laughs> you know, you need to keep some money around. So those are all excellent points. Yeah, maybe that's why we get along, I think, too. It's like, <laughs> I'm the idea guy, too. So <laughs> yeah, and I definitely surround myself with team members that are very operations focused as well. And so that's a great point. Yeah. I mean, one of the methodologies that I've always liked is the EOS methodology, the Entrepreneur's Operating System. And Gino Workman, he talks about how every company has an integrator and a visionary at the top. And I never liked the term visionary. I think it sounds very pompous, but essentially it's an operator and an ideas person. And it's hard to be successful if you only have 50% of that equation. Yeah. Are you using EOS within 3Q? Yeah, we do. I mean, it's one of these things where they have consultants that will come in and give you the training. And we've done at least two rounds of consultant training. And you come out of the training, you're like, oh my God, I'm going to execute this at 100%. And then two weeks later, you're executing at 90%. And six months later, you're at 80%. So over time, you come up with reasons not to follow the process entirely. And you need a refresher. But yeah, I love it. And there's other methodologies out there. There's the, what's it called? Rockefeller Habits is one that people use. But for me, having that sort of methodology was really valuable. Yeah, no, I've gone back and forth. Like I know I'm very aware of it. A lot of companies here in town use it. For me, it's like, does this work for a services business? But I know it's more foundational and fundamental around how meetings are handled. Like you said, who's doing kind of what role. And there's seems like there's some cool software as well that people have built off that methodology. Yeah, I mean, I recommend there's a video on YouTube and it's Gino Workman talking about a level 10 meeting. It's like eight minutes long. Maybe we can link to it in the notes. But that right there is just how to run a meeting properly. I think it's fascinating and any business can benefit from that. Awesome. Well, John, thanks for joining us. This was great. Really appreciate hearing your story from the WordPressing entrepreneurship, <laughs> word processor entrepreneurship of days to surfing to starting a couple agencies. Congrats on your success. And hopefully we'll catch up in future episode and maybe we'll dive a little deeper into some of the things we talked about. All right. Yeah, no, thank you for having me. And this has been great. So I appreciate it. And it's been a good experience. Yeah, thank you. A new episode of Agentic Shift drops every Wednesday. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform or visit agenticshift.com to see the latest episode.